Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Joe Zimmel and Valerie Friedman. This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. The latest report from the Office of Child Advocate finds Connecticut schools are not following up with children who've been withdrawn from school by their parents. Child Advocate Sarah Egan will join us to talk about what her office discovered when it reviewed six school districts across Connecticut. Now, parents choose to homeschool for a variety of reasons. Should local governments also track these kids? We want to hear from you. That conversation coming up. First, Connecticut Public Radio has rolled out a new series about children with autism spectrum disorder. The series focuses on when children are being diagnosed, why there are delays in the diagnosis of children of color, and what support exists for families. Do you have a child with autism spectrum disorder? Join the conversation. You can email us where we live at WMPR.org. And as always, find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. I want to welcome into the studio Dr. T. Dumont Matthew, developmental behavioral pediatrician at Connecticut Children's Medical Center in Hartford and contributor to Connecticut Public Radio with her series, Seeing Things Differently. Dr. Dumont Matthew, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. So I mentioned that you are a pediatrician, a developmental behavioral pediatrician at Connecticut Children's. Uh, What prompted you to think about doing this series? For us, the mainstay of our profession is trying to identify children who are having difficulties developmentally as early as possible. So the opportunity to reach your audience and in hopes of having one or two parents listening think of their child and reach out for services really was the main factor that impacted my decision. How long have you been working with children and their families who've been diagnosed or they, they're concerned that there are some developmental delays? Tell me a little bit about your background. I have been a developmental behavioral pediatrician for about 15 years, and I really enjoy uh, most the interactions with families. Uh, I feel like families are really at their best when they try to figure out how to help their children progress and be independent. So for our listeners who live in very different parts of the state, um, if uh, there's some issue with their child developmentally, will their pediatrician then recommend them to, to go to Connecticut Children's? How do you, how do you encounter some of the, your patients? We do see children at Connecticut Children's from throughout the state and actually some from out of state. And generally, we are referred um, children by their pediatrician or primary care provider. Um, whether the family is initially concerned and speaks to their pediatrician or the pediatrician has the concern initially. And we're going to be getting into that more about the whole process for families, again, when they're um, just learning that their child may be on the spectrum. Uh, that's coming up. But I wanted to learn more about this series that you've been working on, uh, Dr. Dumont uh, Matthew. Uh, it's a four-part series. Uh, tell us about uh, your first story and what you're focusing on. The focus in the first story was to simply outline for our listeners that autism spectrum disorders can be diagnosed much earlier than they actually are being diagnosed. Um, So that was the main message. Children can be diagnosed very reliably by age two, most children, and our average age of diagnosis right now is four. So we have a long way to go. 
When you say average age of diagnosis, is that in Connecticut or, or nationwide? Nationwide. And you're right to raise that point because the recent CDC data with the new prevalence rates um, does highlight that there are different prevalences across the country. So some states are identifying children a little bit better than others, but the overall national data suggests four is the average age. Um, so you're saying that there are tests to reliably diagnose autism between 18 and, and two years of age. So why is it uh, not happening sooner? Because you said the screening just varies from state to state? It's probably several factors. First of all, we are not, uh, as pediatricians, screening all children as recommended. The recommendation is that all children should be screened with an, an instrument looking for possible autism spectrum disorder, something like the MCHAT, Modified Checklist for Autism in Toddlers, at their 18 and 24 month well child visits. And less than 50% of pediatricians are really doing that. Um, so that's one factor. The second factor is part of what uh, this series hopefully going to change a little bit is just making people more aware of autism spectrum disorders, that, that they're a spectrum. Children can look very different um, who all have autism spectrum disorder. I think most people think of the most severe end of the spectrum, uh, and so those children get diagnosed earlier typically, but children who have m more mild signs, if you will, or symptoms, also benefit tremendously from services. You mentioned the MCHAT, uh, the Modified Checklist for Autism and Toddlers. Uh, that's a screening tool. So tell us more how that works. So the MCHAT is actually our Connecticut's own uh, Dr. Fine and Dr. Robbins, who was in Connecticut, is now at Drexel, uh, are two of the co-authors of the MCHAT. It's a checklist that parents complete. It takes a few minutes. And based on the responses, we're able to identify if there are risk factors for a possible autism spectrum disorder. So like all screening checklists, the goal is not to diagnose a child. It's simply to say, hmm, this child needs a closer look. Mm -hmm. Something's not quite right in terms of their development. And that's why we strongly encourage pediatricians to simply use the MCHAT. Give it to parents, have them fill it out, score it. If they score at risk, refer them for a closer look. Can you give me an idea of some of the questions that's on this checklist? So some of the questions focus on the signs that are commonly seen in autism spectrum disorders, such as eye contact or hand movements that would be like hand flapping. But we also ask about some other general things, like is the child walking uh, based on the age that they are? Are they trying to communicate um, non-verbally by pointing, for example, or looking with you at things if you try to get their attention. Um, so the questions are worded in very simple language. It's meant for parents to be able to answer very quickly and just seeing whether the child is or isn't doing the things they should at that time tells us if they need to be looked at more closely. Now, you said earlier that it's 50% of uh families are getting this screening tool offered to them? Well, so 50% might be generous. <laughs> Some studies suggest it might be even 30%. So not we're not doing enough of the screening, let's put it that way. And I think 
there are again many factors why that that is the average pediatric visit now is less than 15 minutes so there are a lot of things that are you know that pediatricians have to cover in that visit and they are all important but i would suggest that figuring out if a child needs to go to the next step and get some services that's going to impact their functioning overall is really an important thing to squeeze in there I'm speaking with Dr. T. Dumont Matthew, a developmental behavioral pediatrician at Connecticut Children's Medical Center in Hartford. Uh, she's contributor to Connecticut Public Radio with her series, Seeing Things Differently, and we're learning about that series today here on Where We Live. I understand in your reporting you interviewed Dr. Holly Frost. Uh, she's a pediatrician in New Britain who spoke about the use of MCHAT in her practice. Let's hear what she had to say. I screen everyone in my practice, not just at-risk children. All the children in the practice get MCHAT, which is a screening test for autism. So we're hearing that Dr. Frost says all children in her practice get the MCHAT. Is that typical? So that's the, that's the thing about average numbers. So even though less than 50% of pediatricians are screening, there are pediatricians like Dr. Frost who are consistently screening children. And I love the fact that she makes this a priority. Her patients appreciate that, I'm sure. And she's helping make sure we identify children who need help. So it's not necessarily a requirement. Is it guidance that pediatricians follow to use the screening tool? The American Academy of Pediatrics has uh, put out guidelines back in 2006 indicating this is something that pediatricians should be doing. It's not mandated by law. <laughs> um, and so it's really a strong recommendation that all pediatricians should screen. And I encourage parents to walk into their 18-month visit and walk into their 24-month visit and not just ask what vaccine their child's due to get today, but to say, hey, are we getting our MCHAT today? I know we're supposed to get an MCHAT at this visit. Mm. Let's get into why it's important to get the screening uh, the screening tool. Again, the MCHAT, as you mentioned, at these uh, well visits. Uh, when we look at how uh, children, uh, how their brains develop, talk about the significance of when you get that screening early, what it can mean in the long term. So we know uh, with all the data that's been found that the earlier we intervene with children who have any developmental difficulties, the better they're going to do. The brain is more flexible, uh, plastic, if you will, and so the intervention has more impact. And in addition, if we're helping children when they're young to learn to communicate, they don't get frustrated. If they don't get frustrated, they don't end up having aggressive behaviors. So we are avoiding all sorts of paths that are not helpful to children functioning well in the early years. And so that's why if you think about it, a child who's four um, versus two, that's double their lifespan, right? So if we can identify them at two, get them connected to services, by four they can be a completely different child. That's important to mention because you were uh, saying earlier when a parent or parents uh, get this diagnosis for their child, it's you know common for, for them to think, worst case scenario, my child has autism, what is this going to mean? Uh, but if they're uh, diagnosed early, as you said, they're getting connected to services that will help with uh, maybe stemming some of these these delays. Absolutely. I think parents don't want their child labeled, quote unquote. Really, they don't want their child boxed. So what we say often in our visits is the goal is not to label or box or limit the child. It's really to figure out which set of keys do we need to pull out so we open the right doors for that child. So think about if the child is having difficulty reading, 
you'd do the same thing. You'd figure out how to focus on their particular way of learning so that they're learning to read. While helping them function well developmentally impacts everything else subsequent to that. So we are trying to open doorways for them so that they will get further in life rather than have their limitations impede or keep them from reaching their potential. Uh, in your reporting in this uh, series, again, seeing things differently on Connecticut Public Radio, uh, I understand that you're going to be looking into why there are additional delays experienced by children and families of color. Why is that? So racial and ethnic disparities we know exist in healthcare in general and affects many, many areas of healthcare, many diagnoses. And so it isn't really that surprising that this also impacts autism spectrum disorder. Uh, the impact, though, just as we've said, is very significant. If children are being diagnosed at six or five as opposed to three and four, that's going to be a significant limitation to how they do as adults. And really, for us as a society, it's to our benefit to figure out who needs help while they're young, implement that help so that they don't need as much of our help when they're adults. They're able to contribute to the society at large. So yeah, that's something we're going to explore in one of the stories is understanding what are these disparities exactly with autism, what are they due to, and what can we do to fix them. Um, in your reporting, are you hearing that it's just a lack of knowledge about the importance of getting screened early, or is it about access? It's really multifaceted. It's not just one thing. And the data is, is clear. I interviewed two experts who do research in this field nationally for the story, and it isn't just a lack of access. Children of color face significant number of additional limitations that or barriers, rather, that get in their way. This is Where We Live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Seeing Things Differently is a series on Connecticut Public Radio focusing on autism spectrum disorder. Contributor Dr. T. Dumont-Matthew is with us to talk about her series and some of the challenges families uh, navigate when they find out their child has autism spectrum disorder, also known as ASD. Now, coming up, a Connecticut parent will join us to talk about her experience, and we want to hear from you, too. If you have a child with autism spectrum disorder, how would you describe the interactions uh, between the pediatricians and other medical professionals when you receive that diagnosis. You can email us where we live at WMPR.org. Find us on Facebook and Twitter at where we live. We'll be back after a short break. This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. We've been learning about a new series on Connecticut Public Radio called Seeing Things Differently. Contributor Dr. T. Dumont Matthew is in studio with us. She's a developmental behavioral pediatrician at Connecticut Children's Medical Center in Hartford. And joining us now is a nurse and a Connecticut mother, Jen Hudson. Her son, Mason, was diagnosed with autism spectrum disorder. Jen, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. So tell us a little bit about your son. He's five years old now? He is, yeah. He's five and a half. Uh, typical child, happy, smart, bright. And he was diagnosed with autism spectrum disorder at 22 months. Can you walk us through that, that moment? Uh, did you realize that there were some developmental delays? Tell us a little bit about before he got the diagnosis. Uh, at 12 months old, we knew something wasn't right. He had a very flat affect, poor eye contact, wasn't walking. Up to that point, he had met all of his developmental milestones, but from there, he was just very stagnant, wasn't gesturing. So we contacted birth to three, 
and spoke with our pediatrician who really encouraged us. So uh, again, Dr. T. Dumont Matthews in the studio with us. She mentioned birth to three. Tell us what that is exactly. So birth to three is uh, our state's early intervention program. All 50 states have an early intervention program that's available to families whose children have developmental difficulties. And um, they really are extremely important in this, in this um, issue of identifying children and getting them services early. You mentioned delays, Jen, so uh, recommended to go to the birth to three specialist. What did they tell you before the, the official diagnosis? Well, we did an MCHAD at 18 months, which was positive, and they were kind of prepping us for that diagnosis. Um, we were never shy. I said, you know, I want to know what you guys are thinking, and they said, we really think he has autism spectrum disorder. We'd like to have him evaluated with a formalized test by a clinical social worker, which we did, and he was diagnosed uh, again at 22 months, which we weren't surprised at all. So what happened next? We increased his services. Probably the best advice is twofold that I've ever received, and one being from our pediatrician that said a diagnosis of autism spectrum disorder will give us better services. Mm -hmm. That's the only thing it's going to do. And it was, Mason's world just lit up. We went from having an hour and a half of birth to three services to 18 hours a week of services. Mm -hmm. And again, at 22 months, we had the 18 hours a week of services we went from a child who was nonverbal, not able to gesture, not able to really communicate, to by three years old, completely age appropriate for language. He made phenomenal gains, phenomenal. Do you feel fortunate that he got that diagnosis? Oh early? my gosh, so, so fortunate. There's no doubt in my mind if we waited, he would still be nonverbal. He's five today? He's five, yeah, five and a half. Will he be getting ready to go into kindergarten? Or is yeah. he already there? Yeah, he'll. He's going to be in kindergarten next year. We kept him back um, because he's a December baby. He's been in full-day preschool, and he has just blossomed. Mm -hmm. He's social. He's happy. He's flexible in his play. Um, he's bright. He's doing very well. I mentioned earlier, Jen, that you're a nurse. Uh, did that background help you when you were when you were noticing these delays again in your son uh, when he was a year old? Honestly, I don't think so. <laughs> I've always worked with adults, but when he, when we were kind of toying around this diagnosis, I had to do a lot of research myself. I knew a little bit about autism spectrum disorder, but really not the spectrum that it is. You know, again, like uh, Dr. Dumont said, you think of the most severe cases. I didn't really think of the high functioning, which Mason is. Um, so I did a lot of research, educate myself. It's, it's been a journey. Yeah. Uh, Dr. T. Dumont-Matthew, uh, so we heard Jen mention that her son is high-functioning. We've heard from other parents uh, uh, who feel that if someone doesn't have a, a, a loved one who has autism, if they use that term high-functioning, there's not a lot of clear, um, there's not consensus or understanding of what that really means and if the labels help between low-functioning and high-functioning. Can you talk about that a little bit? So the term high-functioning, low-functioning, um, we use that in research to mean slightly different things than I think is often meant in lay conversation. I think generally when people say their child's high-functioning, they mean they are doing well, they are progressing, and they are functioning closer to typical. In research, we often mean that we, we look to see whether the child has 
verbal communication, if they have cognitive functioning that's uh, age appropriate, and those contribute to that definition of being high functioning or low functioning. Every parent I've ever diagnosed asks the question of where does my child fall along the spectrum? I think that is a fair question. What I stress to parents uh, is that if their real question is, how will my child be when they're an adult, then how they are at diagnosis is really just one data point. And if I gave you one data point and asked you to draw me a curve, it'd be harder than if you had several data points. So what I stress to families at diagnosis is our goal is to figure out what is needed now what are we working on now? We really don't speak of two, three, four, five-year-olds who are typically functioning in terms like, what will they be like when they're 25? You know, we assume and presume that they will change a lot. And that applies for children on the spectrum as well, especially if we're connecting them to services. The goal is to change the trajectory of their life and their functioning. So I always encourage parents to focus on the present day and doing everything that we can now to serve the child's needs at this time, because otherwise we can get distracted by the concerns or fears or thoughts of what the future might be like. Jen, I wanted to learn more about, we had mentioned a couple times now, this birth to three program in the state of Connecticut. And you said because your son was connected to those services early, he's doing well. You're Mm -hmm. seeing uh, advancements in his speech and and other um, uh, developmental, uh, the way that children develop as they grow older. But can you be more specific about the particular services and how they work with your son? Sure. Uh, When he was evaluated, A teacher came out and did his assessment and realized that he had expressive and receptive language delays. Um, So she started working with him an hour a week. As she got to know him, we did different screenings and sought consultation from different practitioners. He was evaluated by speech. He was evaluated by occupational therapy, who then started to add him to their caseload. Um, Because of his speech delay, again, his expressive receptive language delays with occupational therapy, he is low muscle tone. Um, So that's how one way his autism has affected him. Um, So they would work with him with strengthening. He had a difficult time in feeding himself, different textures. He was very defensive with different textures, wouldn't touch Play-Doh, wouldn't touch mud or anything like that, eating different foods. So we added those services, and then once he got his diagnosis, we added in a BCBA, which is a board-certified behavioral analyst, um, to work with ABA therapy, you know, all these initials, <laughs> which is applied behavioral analysis, which really is the main treatment for autism spectrum disorder. Uh, Dr. Dumont, Matthew, uh, these these uh, programs, are they covered uh, solely by the state? Is this something that a family's health insurance plan will pick up? I mean, who pays for this kind of intensive uh, treatment? For the majority of families uh, whose children are birth to three age, they don't have a out-of-pocket expense. Certainly the evaluation is free, and I always stress that. If your child needs an evaluation, there's no fee for any evaluations needed. For services, generally, the child's insurance uh, covers most of that for most families, certainly the majority of families. So I wouldn't let concerns about cost be a barrier to families. And again, if we can work on these difficulties early on, 
the child may not need as many services when they're school age, for example. Um, but most children receive the therapies through birth to three without having to pay out of pocket. Mm-hmm. I understand there's three different types of, of programs. Can you lay those out for us? So in Connecticut, because again, each state has their own early intervention program and they're organized and structured very differently. So Massachusetts and New Jersey and, and Connecticut look a little bit differently. Um, but in Connecticut, there are three programs, general, uh, uh, the general programs, which is the majority, the autism specialty programs, and the hearing specialty program. And that has to do with the staffing. And so, for example, as Jen mentioned, the board certified behavior analyst uh, may not be as available in the general programs as an autism specialty program. Mm-hmm. So I, I think, again, this, this is a level of detail that the program will help sort out for families as the child starts um, to have their needs identified and start receiving services. It appears that birth to three is often discussed by policymakers, by uh, clinicians. But uh, when we talk about barriers, you, you want to make sure that you and you stress this, that cost should not be an issue because most services are covered under the birth to three. Uh, but is there this, uh, I guess, this conception out there that uh, that from families that uh, that they may not be able to access services before the age of five? So the other thing that's wonderful about the Birth to Three program is that they will work with children in their, quote, natural environments. For most families, that's going to be the child's home. So one of the biggest barriers to receiving services for families is often traveling to those services if they have to travel to the hospital, for example. In this case, the therapists travel to you. And if you're not comfortable with them providing services in your home or your child's in a child care center, they'll travel to that setting. So, again, cost should not be the concern that keeps a parent from reaching out to birth to three. And what about awareness? If there are gaps for uh, children between the ages of three and five who are at home, um, how, do you, how do you reach those parents? That is a great question. For me, three to five is the time I most worry about. I think birth to three, we stress because we know the impact and the magic that can happen in those years. But it development, like with most things having to do with our health, is not, it doesn't end at three. And children who get services at three will do better than those who don't start getting it till five will do better than those who don't get services till eight. So I always stress to parents, when we find out there's a concern is the best time to start working on those. And we don't really dwell on what happened back then and what we could have, should have, would have done, but we focus on what we can do starting today. So three to five, unfortunately, some families don't realize that the school district has to provide services to their children if they have special needs. And special needs can be speech and language delay or motor delay. And so I encourage families who are concerned to reach out to their school district. Go over to the school that your child will go to kindergarten and say, I'm concerned about him. He's not speaking. What can we do? And they are obligated to do an evaluation free. Um, well, not free because you already paid taxes. But <laughs> um, And provide that child with whatever the services that they need. But often those children, as you say, sit home between three and five with no services, and that really is unfortunate. Uh, But it sounds like, uh, Dr. Dumont, Matthew, again, the onus is on the parent to make that connection or to reach out to the school. Should the school districts be doing a better job with, if they know that there are children within this age range in their town, maybe they're uh, younger siblings of kids in school, how do they get that information to the parents? 
absolutely the schools should be reaching out. And some schools do. Some schools actually host play dates, quote-unquote, or play times and invite children who are uh, nearing the ages that they would need to come in if they need preschool to come. Some schools advertise their lottery process so families know about it. I agree with you that it, the parents have the main responsibility, as they do for everything for their child, but we all as a society have a role to play. So if you're a teacher and you're concerned or you're a neighbor or you're a family member, you know, don't be afraid to speak up. The parent at that moment may not be happy about it, but in the end, I guarantee that they will be grateful that you brought this the concern to their attention or the resource that you mentioned to them. And in my ideal world, we would have a van that just drove around neighborhoods and, <laughs> and passed out screening checklists and did evaluations. Um, and until that time, we have to approximate that by really reaching out to kids wherever they are and making sure making sure that they're on track. And if the child's not on track, they need services. Would you say, uh, in from your reporting as well as your experience as a clinician, are schools, uh, are there schools in this state that are being more proactive? There definitely are schools that are more proactive. Similarly, there are schools that are more generous in their service provision who will be the one to say to the parent, you know, we need to start doing some evaluations. Is it okay? And, uh, and there are other districts who the parents may have to be the one to sort of push. Again, that's the beauty of the Birth to Three program because it's statewide. Where you reside doesn't matter. Your service eligibility is the same. And I, I really wish the school districts similarly had um, more similar criteria and more similar uh, approaches to reaching kids who may need services. This is Where We Live. I'm Lucy Nalbethanchel. In studio with me is Dr. T. Dumont Matthew. She's a developmental behavioral pediatrician at Connecticut Children's Medical Center in Hartford, contributor to Connecticut Public Radio's series, Seeing Things Differently, focusing in on the children who've been diagnosed with autism spectrum disorder, also families to find out what kind of supports are in place, what kind of efforts uh, to raise awareness about programs uh, to help families with children that have autism spectrum disorder. Uh, a mother is also in studio with us. Jen Hudson. Uh, she's a, a based here in Connecticut as a nurse, and her son, is Basin, was diagnosed with autism spectrum disorder when he was 22 months old. Jen, are you concerned at all? Uh, you've spoken, uh, and you've seemed like it's been a positive experience with the birth to three uh, for your child, but once he transitions into the public school where you live, are you worried about the continuity of care? Because we hear often uh, from parents and also child advocates that depending on where you live, what school district, those services services uh, dramatically um, vary. And I'm just curious about oh, your expectation. that's definitely true. That's definitely true. I've really educated myself as best I can. Um, many towns offer a special education PTO. Um, our town is in the process of developing one, which is quite an undertaking, but West Hartford has one that's very well established that I've attended some of their meetings. There's a lot of services in Connecticut that you could seek out um, to educate yourself uh, about the school process. Uh, Mason is on what's called an IEP, an Individual Education Plan. I've always been afraid that he's going to get lost in the shuffle because he is high-functioning. Again, he is on that IEP, um, but we're starting to phase it out because he's met a lot of his goals. But again, you have to advocate, you have to be involved, ask questions, follow through. Um, I'm an advocate at work and at home. Mm -hmm. 
That can be stressful, uh, Dr. Dumont, Matthew, again, for parents to advocate for the children, for their children, uh, you know, because of people's work schedules, other responsibilities. Sometimes that can be hard to reach out to school officials to try to follow up if they're concerned. What advice do you have for parents? It, it is difficult. And uh, for families, uh, most families with young children are juggling by definition. They're juggling a lot of activities, a lot of uh, tasks. If both parents work, they're juggling work. What I would stress and what I do stress to my, my patients is that we have to keep the long view in mind. And so this is a time we have to walk through and march through. And, you know, just like most parents know, when kids are first born, you forget the idea of sleeping through the night. <laughs> um, but that doesn't last forever. So I always stress to parents that they need to um, do the best they can, but they also need to take care of themselves because if they aren't around, then they can't advocate for their child. So it, it, that's why it really is important that towns themselves and others in the community step up and help families because ultimately, if the families aren't around to advocate and push and take care of these children, then we're going to do that work anyway. So the parents can do the best they can advocating for their child. Really, parents are first and foremost teachers and advocates, <laughs> right? Um, but we need to help them as well. We need to do what we can. We, we need to offer the help rather than wait for them to ask for the help. Mm. Uh, in uh, schools that have a high number of children uh, that um, have uh, developmental delays or uh, rely on special education, uh, we think uh, we hear from the Hartford school superintendent uh, when they compare their school district with some of the districts in the suburbs, uh, just the high percentage of children with special education needs. That oftentimes comes down to the kind, also the kind of funding that school districts are having. And there's a, a tension between certain school districts when they see the urban districts are getting more money. I mean, is this something, I know you're a clinician, but when you when you hear that uh, conversation, uh, that dialogue happening and frustration for, at the state level, I mean, w what can parents do when they're worried about the kind of dollars being given to their school district that may help their child? Again, I think it is true that each district has their own budget, but we are a state after all. So Connecticut is a state, and as a state, we need to meet the need of each child. And part of the issue of disparities is the very idea that not everyone gets what they need. Some, you know, it's like I have three sandwiches and you have none doesn't make sense either. So we really need to remember that these are all of our children in the state. Um, they're going to be the ones taking care of us as we all get older. And we need to figure out what each district needs are and help meet them. Because ultimately, it's really about each child. Each child deserves to have the best life that their potential would lend. The final two uh, parts of your series, Seeing Things Differently, are going to be airing later this month. What can listeners expect? So the next story focuses on, on this uh, issue of racial and ethnic disparities in autism. As I said, we'll talk about what that looks like in terms of the disparities for that we see with autism, what we think these disparities are due to, and what can be done to eliminate them. Um, because, again, that affects children, actual children. And then the last story is uh, is probably one of my favorites because we'll hear directly from families and parents like Jen um, about their journey with their, with their children who've been diagnosed. And I am hoping that that will help us all 
walk in their shoes for a few minutes and that that will impact how we view children who have been diagnosed with an autism spectrum disorder. Jen Hudson, we're going to be hearing uh, your voice in that uh, audio postcard as part of the Seeing Things Differently series, uh, that story airing later this month. What advice do you have for parents who may be listening now who, again, uh, may have children on the spectrum or they're in that um, that moment where they might be finding out uh, if their child has the particular um, disorder? Like, what, what advice do you have for them? That's a good question. I think the best advice that I have that's really heartfelt is it's a journey. It's not the end of the world. It does get better. But the earlier that you can get your child diagnosed, get them the services that they need, get them out in the community. A lot of parents are afraid to take their child out with autism spectrum disorder because they may not be able to communicate. They might get frustrated. They might have tantrums. So they're afraid of of what others are going to say because there's a lot of opinionated people out there that aren't afraid to speak up if your child is on the floor at the grocery store having a meltdown because you didn't get them you know a peanut butter candy um, and if you're the one at the grocery store who doesn't have a child with autism spectrum disorder don't judge that parent say you know you're doing a good job I know it's hard is there something I can do to help you or I remember when my child was like that you're really It's not always easy, but just being tolerant, being patient. Um, It's been a great experience for us. I honestly wouldn't change it. I really wouldn't. I'm so proud of my child, uh, proud of the journey that he's had, and I just hope that other parents have as much of a positive experience that we've had. Jen Hudson is a a nurse and a Connecticut mother whose son Mason was diagnosed with autism spectrum disorder. Thank you so much for coming in. We appreciate it. Also in studio with me was Dr. T. Dumont Matthew, developmental behavioral pediatrician at Connecticut Children's Medical Center in Hartford and contributor to the Connecticut Public Radio series, Seeing Things Differently. Dr. Dumont Matthew, thank you. Thank you. This is Where We Live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Coming up, Connecticut's child advocate joins us about a troubling report involving kids who've been withdrawn from school by their parents. How much follow-up should school districts do with kids not enrolled in public or private school? We want to hear from you. You can join the conversation, 860-275-7266. Find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. This is Where We Live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Where We Live's Making Her Story series highlights the career paths of prominent women with ties to Connecticut. Join me Tuesday, May 15th at 6 p.m. for a conversation with Canton native Carolyn Miles, who is president and CEO of Save the Children. More information on our website, WNPR.org. Uh, Now we're focusing on turning our focus, rather, to a new report by the Office of Child Advocate. It raises questions about whether school districts in Connecticut are following guidance by the State Department of Education for students who are withdrawn to be homeschooled. Joining me now in studio is Sarah Egan, Child Advocate for the State of Connecticut. Sarah, welcome back to the show. Uh, Good morning, Lucy. Thanks for having me. Your report was released, I believe, uh, last week, uh, spurred on by the death of Hartford teen Matthew Tirado, who we've spoken about on the show uh, previously. Remind listeners about his case. So Matthew Tirado was a 17-year-old boy who died last year in Hartford from what was characterized as prolonged child abuse and neglect. He was a child with profound developmental disabilities who was known to state and local agencies as someone who had been abused and neglected and not allowed to go to school. Uh, But he remained unseen for the last year prior um, prior to his death. Uh, for the most part, by school officials and state officials. 
Um, we also learned during the course of Matthew's, uh, of our investigation of the circumstances leading to Matthew's death, that his younger sister, um, who was in third grade at the time he died, had been withdrawn from school a couple of months before Matthew's death, ostensibly for the purpose of being homeschooled. Um, and that, I think, really surprised us because this is a child um, who also had been the subject of multiple maltreatment reports. Um, Matthew's mother, who's pled guilty to manslaughter in connection with her um, with her son's death, um, was put placed on the child abuse state's child abuse registry in 2014 for child abuse of her daughter, and that a child who had been a documented victim of maltreatment could be withdrawn from school, essentially with the provision of a piece of paper, um, was pretty shocking. And after Matthew died and DCF was doing another investigation um, uh, of what led to his death, along with police, um, Ms. Torado, Matthew, and and his sister's mother could provide no indication that she was educating either child. And she could provide no reason why she withdrew her younger child from school. So this was a a troubling case. You then, your office, looked at six different school districts around the state. Uh, Do they follow the guidance? What is the guidance that comes down from the state about parents who decide to withdraw their their, their children? So what we wanted to learn more about, and we started with the Hartford Public Schools where uh, Matthew was enrolled. We wanted to learn, are there other children who are disenrolled from school with a stated purpose of being homeschooled and who lived in families that were previously investigated by DCF? for alleged child abuse or neglect. We also wanted to know if districts conduct any sort of systematic follow-up, whether it's a check-in or a records check or a meeting with parents. The State Department of Education guidance that you referenced, Lucy, was published a couple, I mean, geez, time flies, in the 90s, so that would be decades ago now, um, that suggests that uh, that, a, that the districts keep a record of uh, children that are withdrawn to be homeschooled and that they do an annual portfolio review of work to check in with the, with the family. Um, so we surveyed six districts. We picked a couple rural, urban, and suburban just to get a sense of what we would find. And unfortunately, what we found is we found other children who, had, who like uh, Matthew's sister, had been withdrawn from school to be homeschooled and who lived in families that had, at sometimes substantial prior history with the Department of Children and Families. Um, across all six districts, we found that. Um, and we also found that none of the districts engage in systematic follow-up with children who are homeschooled, in part, I would say probably large part, because they're not technically authorized to do that. So the State Department of Education guidance, while it makes sense um, and it may you know, work for some families in some districts, is not part of Connecticut state law. And what we ultimately learned is there is no Connecticut state law that regulates homeschooling at all. Um, And Connecticut's an outlier in that area because most states, including every state around here, um, but most states in the country uh, regulate, have some regulatory framework for homeschooling that is, is ranges from minimal to moderate and that requires some follow-up with students and their families to make sure that there's education going on. So Connecticut's one of 11 states that has no regulation in terms of looking and following up with parents who just sign a, a, a form to say that they're going to withdraw their kids to be homeschooled. Your report found that over a three-year period, nearly four out of 10 kids who were withdrawn for homeschooling reasons lived in households reported to uh, have child protection for suspected abuse and neglect. So there were 
reports of, of possible neglect and abuse. So what has been the response uh, by lawmakers and also the homeschooling community? Because as you mentioned during the public hearing, I believe, this isn't necessarily, uh, you're not uh, pointing criticism to parents who homeschool, but the lack of there being some kind of law to follow some type of guidance and once kids are withdrawn. Right, and thanks for raising that. I think we, are, we testified before the Legislature's Children's Committee last week uh, with this information. It was an informational forum. I heard from lots of folks, including us. Um, and we want to be very clear. The Office of the Child Advocate supports strongly parents' rights to direct the educational upbringing of their children. Parents in our country have a fundamental constitutional right to direct the religious and educational well-being of their children. Um, and that, that, that right should be jealously guarded, um, and it should be uh, regulated only in compelling circumstances. But courts have found that states have a compelling interest in ensuring that children are educated and ensuring that children are protected from abuse and neglect, and that homeschooling regulations um, have to balance those interests. Well, in Connecticut, we don't have a balancing of those interests because we have no regulation. Um, and so while we strongly support parents who homeschool, and strongly believe that there are many parents who homeschool children in robust, nurturing, um, and terrific ways. The reality, the, what we're pointing out is that there are unintended and in some cases harmful consequences from having no system of any check on, on a parent's ability to withdraw their child from school. So, I mean, what, what we found, you know, that you cite that 4 and 10 number, so the, the total number of kids withdrawn in the six districts over the three-year period was 380. We found over 90 of the children lived in families that had been reported multiple times for suspected child abuse and neglect, and over 40 of the children um, had, had been lived in families that had been reported four or more times, up to one family that had been reported 30 times for child abuse and neglect. You know, that, that's a concern. Now, that doesn't tell us that all of those children are subject to maltreatment, that none of those children are being educated. But given those facts and the fact that there is no system for any follow-up, I think it's enough to engage stakeholders, including parents who homeschool and their advocates, to say, can we talk about this? And can we talk about the construction of a safety net for uh, at-risk or higher-risk children? Connecticut's child advocate Sarah Egan is in studio with me today on where we live as we talk about uh, her office's recent report looking at how school districts uh, follow guidance from the state on checking in on uh, children whose parents have withdrawn them uh, because of uh, being homeschooled. Now, uh, you had mentioned that um, this public hearing and they heard from many um, advocates for uh, parents who homeschool who say, look, if there are issues of neglect in a home, it's the responsibility of the Department of Children and Families, not the school district. How do you respond? Well, I agree that child protection is the business of the Child Protection Agency. The concern that happens when children who are documented victims of maltreatment or documented to be at risk for maltreatment are withdrawn from schools, that they're withdrawn from visibility. Schools are relied upon in our community, along with medical professionals and sometimes law enforcement, to be key mandated reporters of suspected child abuse and neglect. So let's say some of the case examples that we talked about in our memo, we have kids you know, who live in families who have reported four, five, six, seven times to the Department of Children and Families for problems in the family that range from substance abuse, untreated mental health issues, chronic educational neglect. Once the child is then removed from the visibility and the safety net of of child welfare, of, um, 
of school officials, then nobody knows what happens. And so while, yes, if if somehow that child then comes to the attention of of state officials for, you know, neighbor calls or police come to the house, yes, that's the job of child protection to respond. But the concern is that there may be no follow-up. We may not hear about that child again for a while. We may not know anything about the conditions that child's living in. Um, and it's the lack of visibility combined with risk that's very concerning. Just a couple minutes left, Sarah. So what kind of basic law should Connecticut adopt uh, that would uh, protect these children, but also not interfere with the rights of parents to homeschool? Well, I think it's very important that we don't overly burden families who are choosing to educate their children at home. And our report didn't advocate for a particular regulatory framework. We we referenced the frameworks that are in use in other states like New York and Pennsylvania and New Jersey. Um, and we are recommending a structured stakeholder discussion, hopefully to be convened um, by the legislature to look at those frameworks. As I've been saying, we don't need to reinvent the wheel. We can look at other people's wheels. We can pick the spokes that work for Connecticut that allow families the freedom to uh, ensure their children are well-educated while still uh, providing a safety net for high-risk kids and letting the state ensure um, that there could be some follow-up. So I look forward to that discussion. Uh, It would be interesting to hear from other jurisdictions about how well their systems are working. Um, But we have a lot to choose from. Um, in terms of, you know, this, what, are, what do states do? They, they sometimes have minimum, um, they have hours requirements, records requirements, um, some form of annual assessment or progress notes that they ask the parent to submit. There are a lot of parents in Connecticut who do that voluntarily with the district, but there's no requirement to do so. So these are the types of things we'd want to talk about. But I'll tell you, Lucy, you know, we had a very uh, lively hearing last week, which I think was terrific. It's important to have these robust discussions. But, I, you know, one mom came up to me who homeschools her children and came up to me after the hearing. And she said, look, she said, I hear where you're coming from. I don't know what the answer is. She said, but I don't want parents to use homeschooling as a guise to neglect their children and remove them from public view. So she said, I understand what where you're coming from. Um, and I appreciated that sentiment because I think that is where we're coming from, right? We want parents to be able to homeschool, but not every kid that's withdrawn from school is being educated. And you mentioned a meeting with stakeholders, so that would be DCF, school districts, parents and advocates of homeschoolers, your office, anyone else? Um, well, that's that's a good list. Let me think. You <laughs> name them all. State Department of Ed, DCF, parents who homeschool, school districts, superintendents, um, and advocates for families that homeschool. So there, I think there are also a couple of national organizations that are involved in homeschooling who are really interested in this discussion. One that came up for the hearing last week that historically... Um, it, defends parents from having to comply with any regulations. But another organization called the Coalition for Responsible Home Education comprised of homeschool alumni who advocate state by state for regulation um, to protect the integrity of the homeschooling process. Maybe we can invite some of those stakeholders to another show here on Where We Live and we could have a discussion between different sides, Sarah. That would be interesting. I look forward to that. Sarah Egan again is the uh, from the Office of Child Advocate, Connecticut's uh, Child Advocate. Thanks so much for coming in. We appreciate it. Thanks so much, Lucy. Today's show produced by Lydia Brown. Thanks to Carmen Baskoff. Our technical producer is Kion Wolf. Learn more about the show, wmpr.org slash where we live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Thanks for listening.